Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of Finneran's Wake. I'm joined today by Professor Mark Schrad. Uh, Mark Schrad is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Villanova University in our country's first capital, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at which our illustrious founding fathers uh, convened so long ago. He's the director of Russian Area Studies at that distinguished Roman Catholic institution, equally marked for its religious piety and basketball prowess. Uh, he earned his PhD in political science at the University of Wisconsin at Madison and has since published three books, all by Oxford University Press, to which I'll include links in the show notes below. Uh, the Political Power of Bad Ideas, Vodka Politics, what, uh, whose name I just love, and his latest work, across which I had the good fortune to stumble during my latest trip to Barnes & Noble, Smashing the Liquor Machine. Mark, thank you so much for agreeing to join me today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This will be fun. Oh, I think it will be uh, loads of fun. So um, I wanted to begin first uh, with some domestic uh, news. Now, I know this isn't your formal area of academic expertise, uh, but as someone in possession of a PhD in political science, who's a resident of the pivotal Keystone state of Pennsylvania, in which uh, one of the most compelling and unusual Senate races occurred, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about the results of this midterm election from which we're but a day removed. Um, yeah, what do you want to talk about? I mean, <laughs> I've got my own, you know, sort of uh, my own partisan slant on it, um, but also, you know, trying to study things objectively uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, some of these different elements. Um, you know, I, I guess in terms of, uh, I guess my own personal politics. Uh, you know, there was some relief uh, when it came to you know not only the uh, uh, you know the Senate race but also the governor's race because I think that would impact us more uh, directly. Um, I'm I'm grateful, um, in particular that that Shapiro won uh, the governorship because uh, some of the stuff that Mastriano was putting out there utterly toxic, um, you know, especially when you've got uh, friends and family members, you know, in the LGBTQ community, um, you know, that have been roundly vilified and attacked. Uh, you know, we were suggesting that we probably couldn't stand four years of that coming from the governor's office in particular. And so, you know, I think that was kind of a, a big sigh of release for, relief for us there. Um, more to the point, more I guess for, for more of an objective position, and this is something I talked about with my students uh, today in class, is that, um, you know, a couple days ago, like on social media, I, I found this, um, uh, this, this video investigation of, um, you know, it was on CNN.com of these uh, election monitors, right, who were uh, be being trained up. Uh, you know, and a lot of it is based on sort of conspiracy theories, you know, that, that, that the, the elections were stolen and, the, you know, this whole thing is rigged and on all this. And I was, you know, watching this video, very, very interesting kind of back and forth. And I started looking, I'm like, okay, this is, this is Pennsylvania. So that's kind of hits close to home. And then 
That looks a little bit closer, and the guy in the, the video says, it says Radnor Democrats. Well, that's that's our area around here. Or not Radnor Democrats, Radnor Republicans. And then um, and then I was looking at the, the video, and they were shooting the, the, the CNN video in the, the park across the street from our house. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is happening right here. This isn't some abstract thing that's, you know, w- way out in the ether. This is, this is right in the middle of it all. Um, and that was all interesting and kind of uh, in, in its own right. Uh, but then when I voted yesterday, as we were going in, my wife and I were going in to vote, and uh, and I looked over, and uh, outside the election, our little precinct was that same guy from the CNN video, and uh, I was like, I got to talk to that guy because I want to figure out, you know, because again, just thinking of this in sort of the objective study of politics, you know, sort of my own, you know, partisan beliefs. Aside, this is fascinating to me. This is somebody, and so we we went and we voted, and you know, and she went kind of on her way. She's like, I don't want anything, any part of this because who knows what could come out of this, right? So. I went up and talked to him and I'm like, Hey, you're that guy from that CNN interview. Right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like, so, so I, I wanted to know all about him. I wanted to know like what motivated him to do this, what motivated him to do, you know, a CNN interview when nobody else would. Uh, I wanted to know like uh, how, you know, what the fallout was like for him, you know? And, and so he's, he was saying he got death threats and, uh, and all sorts of, you know, stuff was going on and, and, uh, you know, all these people calling me up you know, out of the blue and telling me that I'm crazy. And he's like, you probably think I'm crazy, too. And I'm like, I don't think you're crazy. You know, I, you know, I may personally, I might disagree with your politics, but I'm fascinated by, you know, your own motivations and what motivates you to get involved in politics and, and sort of the way that it comes about. So we had a very nice kind of pleasant conversation with this, uh, you know, this uh, this kind of election denier uh, who was watching the polls and, you know, uh, it seemed to turn out for the best because I do think that's that's one thing we have to get back to is like engaging with each other, not vilifying, but sort of, you know, building building bonds of, of familiarity and building bonds of trust. And, you know, I think the more that we do that, the further we get away from death threats and, uh, you know, it's, it's my way or the highway, you know, trying to find some common ground, uh, even when the stakes are very, very far apart. Yeah, no, and, and that's a very laudable <laughs> approach to a man. Uh, of that inclination it, yeah it seems as though th- these death threats are almost de rigueur everybody is being um inundated with them for the mere uh sin of <laughs> simply disagreeing or, or having a different idea or opinion um no so that's that's an interesting experience you had and and um of course the fact that he was willing to speak with you and you with him uh, certainly is is encouraging now do you mm-hmm. think relaying that message that story to your students do you think they uh, would respond in a similar way or do you think that there's a significant generational gap between maybe the the 20 year old student whom you're teaching and someone in your own age group or, or that of your wife who might approach these more amicable cordial well, maybe not cordial but at least more amicable conversations in a, in a more civilized way do you see the younger generations to whom you're you're instructing? Do you see them maybe having that same ability that you displayed on that day? Oh, I think there's. I think it's just a natural curiosity. You know, is is more the motivation. I, I wouldn't know. You know what what students would go in and you know try to you know. I'm sure there's some people who would want to sort of you know have somebody who might be their partisan opponent and would want to. You know, I don't know, make a make a TikTok or a, a, you know an Instagram video or something, and just like dunk on them, right? And and just 
make it like a, a zero sum game that I'm going to win and you're going to lose and I'm going to put it on social media or something like that. But I, I do think, you know, there's there's a lot more um, grace out there than we'd like to suggest. Right. You know, that's that that people are willing to, you know, once you get sort of beyond the 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 screens that we're all used to staring into and, uh, you know, sort of uh, c conducting things and, and getting back to sort of face to face interactions. Uh, I think people are much more, uh, much more amicable and tend to be much more pleasant in that way. At least I hope so. Knock on wood. You know, so. Yeah. It's such a, I don't know, a hackneyed idea at this point that the disconnect, the disconnect between people um, is probably one of the main causes of our, of our, uh, well, what feels to be our uh, unraveling as a, as a society. But yeah, I think as soon as you walk up to someone, even if he's an election denier or what have you, and actually look into his eyes and have a conversation and just out of mere curiosity, I think nothing bad from that can happen in, mm -hmm. in most cases. I think that's always constructive. So you spoke about the, the governor's race. Uh, I think that was by and large a foregone conclusion. I know that you... Uh, you said that you sighed, a, uh, there was a, a sigh of relief for his victory, for his winning. But I was uh, watching very closely, as I think most of America was, uh, the Senate race between John Fetterman and, and Mehmet Oz. So maybe you can remark on that for a little while. Did you expect the outcome that we that seems to be uh, the case? Mm -hmm. You know, I... I, I kind of had, right? And so, you know, I, I just kind of keeping an eye on sort of, you know, not only polls, but different degrees of, of civic participation, um, you know, over the over the months, because this has been going on for what, nine months, we've been you know, living through $375 million worth of advertisement, advertising kind of dumped into our, uh, into our laps. Um, and so it seems to be, have been going on for a long time. And you could, you could kind of tell, uh, you know, the degree to which there was, you know, varying degrees of enthusiasm between the different candidates. Uh, but, you know, in recent weeks, you know, the, the polling had tightened quite a bit. Um, and, and so there was, I think, some uh, so, some concern. Um, and my personal thought was that it was just going to get boiled down to, uh, you know, like it was in, in 2020, right, that it was is Mike is going to come down to uh, to absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, because Pennsylvania is notoriously slow with this because they can't legally begin counting ballots until election day, even if the ones that have been mailed in. Um, and so I wasn't expecting to, to hear, you know, to get a, a, a firm verdict one way or the other uh, until, you know, until Wednesday, maybe Thursday. So the idea that it was um, clear enough that they could call the you know, call both races, both the governor's race and the um, the Senate race. Uh, you know, even late last night, I thought was you know that that was kind of significant in its own right. Is there any? Maybe you don't know this, but is there any initiative in the Pennsylvania legislature to amend this frustratingly slow uh, uh, electoral process? I, for example, I'm living in Florida at the moment, and. Um, since the, of course, the very controversial and fraught election of, of 2000, um, the Florida electoral process has been um, encouragingly smooth and actually quite fast. Of course, they're counting early votes as they come in. And usually within, gee, an hour or two on the evening of, of um, election day, they have their results and, and they're out there. Whereas Pennsylvania just seems... 
to be a, a a bit of a mess when it comes to this. Yeah. Do you do you know? I mean, I mean, do you know if there are any initiatives being taken to smooth oh. that process? Yeah, there had been for a while, but uh, but one of the interesting things, and this has kind of got clarified today, as it turns out, it looks like the um, uh, you know the the state house is actually flipped from from red to blue, which I don't think hmm. nobody really saw that coming. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the initiatives to try to, to deal with electoral reform had been stalled because you had, you know, the, um, uh, the, the Pennsylvania State House was reliably red and they were, you know, reliably in terms of, you know, sort of restricting voting as much as possible, slowing down the process. Um, and, uh, it, and so, you know, I think maybe, I hope <laughs> with a, with a new, uh, legislature, you might end up seeing a little bit more movement in that direction, hopefully soon. Oh yeah, one could hope. Uh, certainly before 2024, or I'm sure <laughs> Pennsylvania will be will be focused on um, with with heightened scrutiny as it as it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard some uh, conspiratorial rumors looking into the future that perhaps a, a Democrat governor of Pennsylvania might with the, let's say, premature retirement of a man like John Fetterman because of um, medical issues, might then uh, um, put forth uh, a, a candidate, or I'm sorry, or a, a senator to replace him. I actually was, uh, was just listening to a, a right-wing talk show radio host this morning describing this type of a plan what do you think about that mm, i hadn't heard that one before <laughs> so i mean it, it, it's plausible well obviously a lot of things are plausible but uh, i can't imagine that you know you know fetterman's you know i, I think he, obviously he has to <laughs> keep an eye on his health um you know but i don't think he's going anywhere i think he's kind of actually one of the more rising stars in the in the uh in, in the party. And so, uh, you know, we'll see how it plays out with his, you know, kind of post stroke health, but, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't imagine him retiring anytime soon. Yeah. And it, it did, did seem to me to be a somewhat, um, unlikely scenario that could play itself out. I suppose it's conceivable, but, but perhaps less likely. Uh, so with that, maybe you could just give a, a brief statement on the, uh, a more general, um, the more general response uh, of these uh, of these results across the nation. Of course, we were expecting uh, a red wave, a red tsunami that turned into a red, a red uh, trickle in in a mm -hmm. otherwise unstirred body of water. So, um, your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, that's that's you know unusual in its own right because again, I, I'm sure you know the. General trajectories are that, uh, especially for a first-term, um, you know, presidents, you know, the midterm elections usually are, are shellacking, right? And so that was kind of the expectation. Um, and so, yeah, it seems like, you know, by all measures, uh, you know, the Biden you know, administration has had the best uh, midterm, you know, <laughs> outcome uh, over the last, you know, 20 30 years or so yeah and, and i so, think a lot of people are surprised by that what mm -hmm. how do you how do you account for that because of course biden's approval rating is is not particularly high so how do you yeah. account for that sort of a result oh i think i think you know 
women are motivated, especially in the, you know, with the, you know, um, with the Dobbs decision, um, you know, putting reproductive rights, not just as, as a, you know, as an abstract concept that could be, you know, uh, rolled back, but as a frontline issue, uh, right there, you know, so between, I think women's rights and, uh, sort of just protection of democracy, uh, as a, you know, again, a sort of a frontline, uh, issue, even despite, you know, these, uh, you know, the, the headwinds they were facing, not only in terms of just the, sort of the, the general sort of institutional, um, you know, kind of blowback that you usually get with midterm elections, but also with the, you know, the inflation and, and, and those issues as well. Um, so I, th I think the focus on that, it's, it's not just economics, it's, uh, you know, these other issues that are uh, motivating people to, uh, to get out, especially young people, younger women in particular, uh, I think are, are sort of the story of the day as, as at least based upon what I've seen at this point. Hmm, that's fascinating. Yeah. I think throughout the course of the summer, uh, the the influence of the Dobbs decision repeal of Roe v. Wade um, on the electorate was was perhaps um, front heavy. Like uh, the the expectation was in 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 May and in June that this would be a a pivotal issue uh, on which mm -hmm. a lot of voters would be deciding. But as the summer progressed, as we got into the fall, as the economy looked bleaker and bleaker, and as the inflation numbers rose higher and higher, I think a lot of people, a lot of pundits were beginning to realize that perhaps reproductive health, the, the issue of abortion, would probably be less important, less integral uh, in people's selections of candidates. Perhaps it was not, though, and, and that's an interesting point that you make on, uh, on that matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly germane, right? It's certainly a very important topic. Um, and I, I think, you know, those people who were kind of discounting that, especially as, as time, you know, goes on from, from the summer to the fall, uh, you know, kind of did that at their own peril. So. Yeah. Yeah. But it certainly is a surprising outcome. Um, mm -hmm. I want to move from American politics to international politics. Um, you are a, a political scientist, of course, and director of the Russian area of studies. So, uh, you know, the event of the decade about which we seem to have forgotten <laughs> is the, uh, the the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. So maybe you can refresh our collective memory. Um, what happened there? Uh, what is the situation at present? And where do you, as a as a close examiner of uh, this conflict, where do you see it going? Oh, uh, gosh, you know, my own <laughs> advisor back in the day was a demographer, and he always said, uh, you know, when it comes to predictions, uh, he always reminded me that, uh, you know, there's a, in Dante's Inferno, there's a certain circle of hell that's reserved for, you know, falsifiers and prognosticators who always have that they have their heads ripped around backwards who are always looking back at their false projections so i always try to get you know step aside what level <laughs> what level of hell would that be i think it was the eighth circle uh i think that's pretty eight. close to the last yeah 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 it's, it's pretty far down there you know one of the so you're, you're getting you're getting, you're getting close to judas and brutus and uh it was in mm -hmm. cassius oh yeah it's been a while but you know the <laughs> the whole thing with 
uh, you know, sort of Virgil kind of taking him down there, I think was you know, very, very, uh, uh, very interesting. But but I guess when it comes to, to Ukraine, you know, uh, you know, how much time do you have? We could talk about this for, you know, for, for weeks, um, you know, so uh, having you know, some notion of uh, obviously the, the Russian invasion um, can argue that that started back in, in 2014. Um, you know, I think that's we kind of focus on what happened back in February with the sort of full scale invasion, but it really has been uh, an outright war since, you know, since 2014. Uh, they just kind of escalated it quite a bit, uh, you know, in, in, in February. Um, obviously, the, the plans that uh, the Russians had uh, weren't, weren't uh, realistic. The idea that they would move into Kiev in, in three days and topple the government and uh, uh, obviously, the Ukrainians have been putting up quite a fight, and now it appears that um, you know. I guess the announcement today is that uh, you know the Russian forces are uh, pulling back from the right bank of the the Dnieper River and and uh, leaving Kherson region, which is a, a huge um, strategic change here in the in the last uh, you know a couple weeks. Uh, but you know this this big announcement is uh, is pretty significant, right? And so. Um, you know, it, it seems to be sort of the, the gradual pullback uh, of, of these forces, uh, even after sort of a mass mobilization of, of you know, 300,000 uh, Russian civilians. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not going well for the Russian side. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what comes of that, how this, this looks in the future, um, you know, there are calls for, you know, the ever-present calls for, for mediation and uh, negotiation. Um, you know, if anything comes of that, I don't know. Uh, it does seem like the, you know, the Ukrainians are um, not only on the offensive, but not exactly willing to negotiate uh, because, you know, a lot of the things that, um, you know, that, that, you know, not only the Russian side, but sort of international side and sort of, you know, American realists and international relations scholars see as being, um, you know, talk about negotiating, well, maybe have a demilitarized Donbass region or, you know, give, give Putin these sorts of things to get into the negotiating table. A lot of this stuff's not negotiable for the Ukrainian side, you know, so, um, so I don't see this necessarily ending anytime soon. Could again, you know, don't want to end up with my head twisted around backwards, but uh, uh, you know, this could be, uh, this could be in for a long slog and what happens during the, the winter, um, you know, nothing good <laughs> comes with Russian winters and Ukrainian winters. So, um, so yeah, so I think we'll just have to kind of wait and see and see how it unfolds at that point. Yeah, I think perhaps a consequence of our short attention spans and our uh, and our attachment to to Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Reels and Shorts, we ex we are experiencing everything on such short timelines. Like the way I look at the Russia-Ukraine conflict is um, sort of what could be very early on in the contest, being not quite a year old, and you as a scholar of of, of Russia. And its history, no better than anyone that th th this isn't a, a population, and, and this current regime isn't one that's averse to uh, long commitments and and wars of attrition that could last years. Uh, so that's, I suppose, that's my fear: is that this just continues on and almost mm -hmm. in in perpetuity. Yeah, well, at some point they're going to run out of arms. <laughs> so I mean, they're. Some of the stuff that especially on the russian side that they've been mobilizing um you're starting to see sort of these antiques that should be in you know in museums uh that they're starting to pop up on the front line so you're starting to see 
you know, wears uh, these military, sort of these frontline like machine guns uh, that were used during World War One, you know, are suddenly popping up. And, and so like you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And so at some point you're just going to run out of sort of basic munitions. Um, and, and so we'll see when that happens. You know, that's going to be a big challenge. Yeah, and I suppose so long as there's a continuous influx of Western materials to the Ukrainians, then, then you know that that fight can be sustained. Uh, do you think that the Ukrainians were uh, wisely intransigent throughout this process? Because I think a lot of realists, as you call them, uh, mm-hmm. were were hoping that a negotiated peace of some sort could be could be um, put forth and accepted. Um, but now, standing where we are, seeing that the oh, well, the areas in the eastern part of Ukraine that once looked to be firmly in Russian control might not might be more tenuously held now. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was provident of them to continue on with the fight and perhaps the, the, what you might call a counteroffensive at this point? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it's of course again, it's not for me as you know some some guy sitting in uh, in, uh, in 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 Pennsylvania to. Uh, uh, you know, to pass judgment on this. I mean, if they're they're in, they're in a fight for their lives, right? You know, they're in a fight for the existence of their country, and so you know, um, as as sort of a, a pacifist and, and sort of Tolstoyan as I can be, you know, on on the one side, you know, it's hard not to recognize the uh, uh, you know the, the fact that they're fighting in self defense and uh, you know trying to retake those territories that are uh, you know that that have been lost to them, um, and so you know trying to to move out the aggressor isn't necessarily in itself an act of aggression in that same way. So, um, so yeah, I mean, they're going to do what they're going to do, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully what they're, what they're going to do, at least what the Ukrainians are going to do is, is to, uh, to succeed in some way, uh, and, and hopefully to bring this, this bloodshed, uh, to an end. Mm-hmm. So with that, I want to turn now, to the topic of uh, your last, at least your last two books, maybe maybe the the first as well. Yeah, it's uh, all there. Which <laughs> it's is all all just kind of lumped together. <laughs> which is which is alcohol, um, one of our favorite uh, beverages and pastimes. So it's clearly a, a topic to which you've devoted much of your popular and I would assume academic work uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, was it your focus? Uh, on Russia and Russian history that led you to a deeper examination of the role that alcohol played in the empire, uh, or maybe in financing the empire, or uh, was were you more of a liquor enthusiast with uh, an unslakable historical interest? So what compelled you to uh, to to research and write about alcohol in this way? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of both, right? You know, so uh, I, I was always fascinated. Well, I, I guess the, the, the I grew up in the Midwest, right? And uh, I remember one of my formative memories was, you know, I grew up in, in Davenport, Iowa, which is right along the Mississippi River. You know, it's home to things like, um, you know, International Harvester, J.I. Case, John Deere. They all have their headquarters there. And, um, back during the old Cold War days, when I was a little kid, um, you know, in the 80s, 
we had these exchange programs, right? So we'd send Americans to the Soviet Union and they would check things out, you know, these goodwill ambassadors and, and Soviets would send delegations, uh, you know, to the United States. And, and so they would send these delegates around and they'd send them to, you know, places like Iowa and they'd say, well, you know, let's, let's see how they do agriculture, right? So we'll go out and tour the farms and fields and then they'll do, you know, they tour the uh, sort of the agribusiness and, and, and tour like John Deere, you know, international harvester. But then they would also tour like, you know, show them what like an American school looks like. And, and they would always come to our school, right? It's, it's, at least that's what it seems. So, you know, we'd have the principal get on the loudspeaker, like when I was in elementary school, they say, you know, kids, everybody be on your best behavior. The, the Soviet delegation is here. And I was like, okay, well, you know, the president is out there calling these guys the evil empire. So obviously they must have horns coming out of their heads. And, uh, uh, but they turned out to be like the nicest people I'd, I'd ever met. Um, and so I think maybe that was kind of the, the, the kernel to a lot of this thing, you know, it was, it was the, this idea of, okay, well, why is, you know, why am I, I being told that these are horrible, horrible people, but my own senses are telling me the exact opposite. Right. So, um, so I, I think that's kind of where a lot of this comes from, like the, the fascination with Russia. Um, don't and, you, and, don't you know, or didn't you know not to believe your eyes, but to believe and trust in the propaganda? Oh yeah. Yeah, that. exactly. But I'm absolutely fascinated nowadays by all the places that were like verboten in the 1980s, right? And so, you know, I, I would love to go sometime to to Libya. Um, I'd love to go to, you know, uh, to, to Iran. You know, these are the places that were like off limits. I'm just endlessly fascinated. I have no, you know, background in any of these areas. I just want to go there, right? And I think that that's, that's the same sort of same sort of route. Like the you know the the people who were the villains. Um, you know, that, that was part of it. And then when it comes to, you know, I guess, uh, I guess the, the more recent book, when you're talking about like temperance activists, if you look at American history, you know, temperance activists are portrayed as, as America's villains, right? Those are the people who are the, the Bible thumpers who are going to take away your freedom to drink and all this. And I'm like, I don't know, is that, is that really what was going on? You know, and I think maybe, you know, uh, sort of the, the common thread between not only American politics and, and, um, in history, but also the Russian side, is that focus on on who it is that we vilify and and why do we do that, right? It, collectively speaking, so you know, I think that's kind of the the common thread that unites these things. But uh, but yeah, so I started go, you know, that was that was the interest, and I started going to you know learning about Russia and, and going there and living there, and uh, you know, you you do hear that stereotype of the drunken Russian, uh, you know, for for a long time, and and. Um, uh, there, there's more to it than just a stereotype, right? You know, and so you go there, and it's like it becomes a professional hazard. You know, if you go to Russia, you're expected to drink. You know, maybe not as a foreigner, they kind of let you off a little bit. You know, and so recognize that you're probably not going to hold as much liquor as they are, um, especially when it comes to vodka. Uh, but the expectation is that you know, if you want to to uh, to get to know people and to open doors, um, you know, there's no better way than doing it over a, a bottle of vodka, right? And, you know, and so once you start to drink with people, they kind of open up and uh, um, become more personable, right? And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So, so yeah, I think that was kind of the, the focus. Um, but also, I you know, from sort of an academic focus, I wanted to, um, you know, take that seriously, right? And say, okay, you know, so so why is it this way? Why is it that Russians drink so much vodka? That was kind of the focus, the motivation for the vodka politics book. Um, and usually, like the explanation is, oh, it's it's culture, it's history. Uh, you know, and I think culture, you know, the hand waving 
as part of that, right? Is um, I think we just kind of toss off into culture as this residual explanatory category for when we can't come up with a better explanation. You know, so it's like, oh, whatever, it's, it's just culture, right? And it's like, no, I think there's there's actually something more to it. And sort of the thesis of the, the vodka politics book is that it's not just about culture, um, but it's, you know, Russians drink vodka because of generations and generations of political and economic decisions that are at the heart of uh, sort of imperial and authoritarian statecraft to put the interests of the state and state finances in particular uh, over the well-being of the population, over the health, you know, promotion in, in that sort of way. And so that um, that was certainly something that had informed a lot of my my interest in sort of the alcohol politics area, uh, both in Russia and then as it kind of ex expands outward from Russia uh, in the uh, in the newer book on smashing the liquor machine. Do you think that uh, vodka and alcohol are unduly synonymous with the Russian citizenry? Uh, like, uh, I, I bear a, an Irish last name, and of course the Irish are often uh, equated with their uh, their tendency to uh, imbibe. Uh, you know, it seems like in every culture there is when you're when you're looking at them derisively uh, from the outside, there is uh, some link to be made between the people, the culture. And its tendency to drink. Um, so, I guess among the, the the peoples of the world, do you think it's like I said, uh, inappropriately inappropriately applied to the Russians? Um, do you think it also could be equally applied to all? You no, know, I think it, it, there are variations, right? And and so, and of course, it's hard to just kind of take a you know an overall culture and you know break it down. It gets into some you know. Um, sort of logical, empirical flaws, like when you're, you're you know, sort of fallacies of division and, uh, and and composition. So, you know, just to say that a, a an entire culture has a particular trait does not obviously mean that every individual has that trait. Uh, and and the the yeah, I guess the inverse is true as as well, right? So if you have individuals um, who are prone to alcohol consumption or alcoholism, that doesn't necessarily expand to sort of a, a broader uh, cultural trait, but yeah, you know, you have, you have variation across different cultures and that, that for me is fascinating, right? So what, why do you have, um, you know, these legacy of alcoholism in some cases, a more societal alcoholism in some areas as, and, and not so much others, um, you know, Ireland is, is a fascinating case. I've got a, you know, a ch chapter five in the, uh, the more recent book has a lot to do with sort of Irish history. Um, and what was fascinating to me, given that, you know, that kind of stereotype that we have of, you know, the drunken Patty and, you know, Ireland and so on, uh, was that, you know, that there is a predisposition towards alcoholism. Um, but what's also fascinating is that, you know, if you go back to the 1840s, 50s, 60s, um, you know, that was, you know, the, the Irish were probably the most temperate people on earth. If you want to judge by sort of membership in, uh, you know, it's sort of temperance organizations. Um, you know, you had the uh, uh, Father Theobald Matthew and his, you know, from, from Cork. And, and uh, you know, he ended up uh, sort of delivering this temperance pledge to people throughout Ireland um, to the point where somewhere around two thirds of all Irishmen were, uh, were let's say, card carrying. They had medals, right? So metal carrying members of this, this temperance league. And so that kind of blows up a lot of the stereotypes that we have. Uh, when it comes to, um, you know, sort of these, these histories of alcohol and alcohol consumption.
Yeah, it really does. And I'd much prefer to have a, uh, a medal <laughs> uh, to to a card, a mere card. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, yeah. I keep yeah, looking yeah. for one, like on eBay or any place. You know, I will see if I can find a, a Father Matthew temperance medal, but uh, to this point, I, I have not found one yet. Oh, I would wield that with such pride as I walked around uh, an otherwise <laughs> in, intemperate town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and and that's 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 fascinating, and the um, connection of some of these peoples with with drink, I think, is sometimes, like you said, um, maybe overdetermined, and and certainly commits a lot of fallacies in that regard. Now, there was, of course, a utilitarian purpose of of alcohol in these empires and that was to raise revenue for the state now that's one of the one of the things that i found most interesting in your latest book you talk about the fact that in some cases up to one fourth 25 percent of a state's revenue would be coming from the imposition of taxes on on liquor on alcohol um so let me ask you why is alcohol of all possible commodities on which you can raise revenue? Why is alcohol particularly um, suitable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, and that's actually was kind of the the focus between or the bridge from the, the vodka politics book to the new book was based just on that. So I, you know, uh, I would go every once in a while to uh, these these conferences in Russia, um, and they asked me. This was you know twenty. 14, 2015, somewhere around there. And, and uh, these, these associates asked me to give like the keynote presentation in Russian to this big conference in, in Russia on, on alcohol and alcoholism. And so I, I did that and kind of um, made it through this thing. And I, I thought they were going to hate me. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm airing out their dirty laundry. And so, you know, <laughs> nobody wants that, right? To, to have a, to be lectured, especially by a foreigner who's going to come in here and say, you know what your problem is? I'll let me tell you what your problem is, right? You know, it's that your, your problem with alcoholism isn't some inherited genetic trait. It's because, uh, you know, the the first the Russian empire and then the Soviet empire that succeed, succeeded it, you know, got one quarter to one third of all their revenues from the sale of alcohol, right? And I thought they were just going to, you know, tar and feather me after that. And, uh, but they were very, very amicable, all these professional historians and, uh, you know, and, and um, you know, social scientists and uh, and, and everything and historians, um, you know, they were all like, they said to me, yeah, that, that's true. Um, but but so what? I was like, well, what do you mean? So what? You know, and they said, well, every empire did that. Every empire, you know, before modern day income taxes had these huge, um, you know, uh, chunks of their budgets that were, you know, derived from the sale of alcohol. And uh, and that was kind of the turning point. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, let me investigate that, right? So that became the, like the starting point of the next book was to focus in on that uh, that that revenue extraction. And so, um, so yeah, if you look at you know all these different countries around the globe, you know, including the United States before income taxes, it was you know a good one quarter uh, of of you know American revenue uh, to, to the federal government came from selling alcohol and it, it has always been that way um and so that was if you go back to the founding of the united states you know you had the uh um you know this is a kind of one of these little bits of uh historical trivia you know when it came to like well what was the first thing you know back in 1789 like the first act of congress well the first act was um you know pass the bill of rights you know that was that was kind of you know 
pro forma, I suppose. Uh, but then after that, it was to try to establish a good financial footing for the, the new government. Because we had those articles of confederation. Those, those things fell apart because nobody wanted to pay their fair share. Um, and uh, the thing that was you know, debated most, I guess, vehemently about that was uh, the idea of having an alcohol not just a tariff like on imported alcohol which had always been you know there since this time immemorial um and to answer your question i think even back then the argument was that this is a an item of commerce that has a negative aspect to it right that can cause social harms um and so you know even people who were as you know sort of uh liberal in terms of their economic predispositions in terms of sort of Adam Smith, wealth of nations type type liberal, right? So in a, uh, yeah, in a classical, classically liberal yeah, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Classical liberal sense in terms of the economics. Uh, even they couldn't, you know, argue that there was some benefit to be had from, you know, fr from imposing a duty because who, who knows, maybe, you know, making something a little bit more dear economically would reduce the, uh, consumption of that good and sure. uh, and that would be a benefit right and so in, you in some ways to... in some ways like a sumptuary tax yeah right? tax exactly and, right and so even the founding fathers are like yeah this is okay we can do this you know <laughs> uh but but the transition from like it you know sort of a, a a a tariff on imported goods to having a tax on sort of domestically made alcohol that was well that's what gave us the uh you know the the whiskey rebellion 1894 out in you know western areas of Pennsylvania, where you had people up in arms at the idea of you know you're going to tax this thing. It's not just an import thing; it's actually a tax on this uh, this particular thing. Uh, and so that became a, a big issue in, in terms of American domestic politics. And I guess the broader issue here, and and whether we're talking about American domestic politics or international politics, um, that kind of motivates. My own approach to a lot of this is that you know the the longer that you spend in this area of studying for alcohol and alcohol control politics, you start to recognize like how much, especially in recent decades, we just kind of bracket that and we say, oh, this is alcohol history, and isn't that quaint? And we can kind of put that over here on the shelf and study it and and stuff like that. But it's really not. I mean, it's it's the the more you get into this, the more you start to recognize that oh alcohol politics is politics politics right it's yeah, and I, it's, I think i think your book does a fantastic job of bringing that recognition to the reader right so that's what i'm saying that i found most yeah. interesting about the book is that this uh, alcohol politics as you call it or or the history of alcohol isn't just some sort of curiosity on the on the peripheral edges of history. No, it's actually quite central to <laughs> to yeah, yeah. the rise and in some cases the fall of of many uh, modern states, modern Western states especially. Um, mm -hmm. You talk about the the whiskey rebellion, and that was an event fundamental to the to the infancy of this nation where you had Alexander Hamilton, right? You said one of our founding mm -hmm. fathers, one of our most esteemed founding fathers devising all these schemes to to raise the necessary funds to to get this federal government on a sound footing after assuming all the debts of the states and you know like we said getting together the bill of rights and the constitution and so what does he do you know you impose a tax on that which is ubiquitously consumed and sold and and 
and cultivated in in this country. That's whiskey, and of course uh, there was a rather hostile response in Western Pennsylvania to this. Um, but again, just emphasizing the centrality of alcohol. I mean, like you said, just one of the very first taxes to which our domestic population was subjected. So, uh, to those of you listening, I think uh, better to recognize that fact. Um, you you need to read a work like yours that really um, that fleshes that idea out and brings it into stark relief. And it's 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 fascinating. Like if you go back in and and just not rely on like more contemporary history books, but if you read like history books that were written, you know about about American history, say you know before 1900, you know that that were published 100 years ago, uh, it's in, in amazing how frequently they talk about you know, sort of alcohol or alcohol control issues just as, as part of the discourse, right? As just, it's not something that is esoteric. It's not something that can be bracketed off and, and put over here and, and, uh, and admired from it is no, it was integral to the entire thing. And everybody seemed to appreciate that. I think maybe that's, I don't want to say it's an indictment of, of more modern histories, but, um, that, that we've kind of lost that, that we start, start to compartmentalize all sorts of different things. Uh, and, and say, well, I'm going to study, you know, tariff history, or I'm going to study, um, you know, nation, uh, nation building or empire building or whatever it is, you know, so we start to bracket ourselves off into all these little components and, and you know, these little tiny fields of study, and we start to not be able to see you know, sort of the things that connect them uh, in many ways in terms of not only domestic history, but certainly you see this when it comes to international histories as well. You know, everybody has their their specialty, you know, I do, like I said, Russian politics and whatnot. Um, and I talk about this more broadly as I, I always refer to it as sandboxes, like, like people don't like, you know, especially like professional historians, you know, don't like it when you play in their sandbox. Right. And so everybody's very territorial, you know, <laughs> political scientists don't like it when economists play in their sandbox and historians don't like it when political scientists play in their sandbox. Right. So there's a lot of sandbox ism right going on. Uh, and so, yeah, which is it makes it very hard to do like a a, a big sort of multinational um, you know it's kind of research project uh, because everybody has those suspicions right so if you know I, th this book you know has a lot of you know not only the stuff in in Russia where I'm I'm comfortable as my sandbox but I'm also getting into you know other people's sandboxes and of course I'm going to you know screw some stuff up no oh, you sure you cer you certainly exceed the boundaries of your prescribed prescribed sandbox yeah. but I think that's yeah. I think that's a wonderful approach. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I also think that in some instances, political scientists make more than more than adequate historians and that historians likewise are, are often very incisive political scientists. I think the overlap of those two fields especially is, is, um, is, is obvious. And that sometimes um, one playing in another's sandbox is actually is quite quite useful for the reader who's who's observing everything, I suppose from yeah. afar. Yeah, I mean there there are ways to do it well. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, there are those those you know the, the territoriality that comes of it and those disciplinary boundaries that that people are very very suspicious uh, of one another. Um, and you know sometimes sometimes folks get it right, sometimes they get it wrong in in you know predictably bad ways. Uh, I, I think the usual. Um, you know, the usual indictment against political scientists, you know, from a historian's perspective is that you lose that sort of uh, 
sort of the, the insightful approaches of, of having that sort of mastery of history. Um, and, you know, political scientists will just come in, you know, this is the way it's usually portrayed. You know, they come in with their, their statistical methods and, you know, they want to crunch numbers and put everything into a regression analysis. Um, and, you know, and away they go, you know, and, and focus in on that without seeing, you know, the, the nuance, you know, in, in, in the history. And so I'm particularly, you know, um, uh, I guess I have some uh, sympathy for that argument because I see, I do see it happen, you know, quite frequently that, that you've got a, a very sophisticated methodology and you just want to apply it everywhere, but you don't recognize those situations where that methodology is not appropriate for what it is that you're studying. So, yeah. And I think, you, I think you do an admirable job of synthesizing and harmonizing those two aspects, the, the more numerical one and the more historical one. And I must say throughout the course of it, you, you tell a great story. I mean, you focus on some extraordinary figures uh, about whom we could talk in it maybe in a few minutes, um, but they really enliven the, the tale. Um, the, what is sometimes a, <laughs> a discouraging tale of the state's imposition <laughs> uh, on its people of these um, of these taxes and this desire for them to continually um, imbibe, which leads me to um, a term uh, of which I previously had never heard. Uh, actually, two terms, and I love. I actually, I think they're so appropriate, and I I want to know if you are responsible for their coining. Uh, the first one is alco-imperialism. Alco-imperialism, uh, portmanteau so far as I can tell. Um, in, in Smashing the Liquor Machine, uh, you introduced this word. Uh, can you describe to us what this means, alco-imperialism? I don't think I coined it. I, I may have picked it up. It's, it's in use in other places, um, but also, it, it kind of describes the role that um, well, alcohol obviously <laughs> uh, plays in, in sort of the imperial process, right? The conquest of, of uh, especially non-European territories, um, which I guess you can also include, you know, in, in Ireland as well as one of the, uh, as, as sort of, you know, Britain's first colony. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to see the way that colonialism is portrayed in in different ways, and and so one is that of of, I guess the the, the more benign version of colonialism is that is is just one of movement of populations that you know people used to be over here and now they're over here, um, and that that I think is uh you know that's that's one way of looking at it <laughs> in terms of colonialism. Uh, the other one is is one of sort of imperial conquest that you know one one group is over here and now they're over here and they are sort of uh, imposing their military will in those areas. Um, you know, a third one looks at it in terms of sort of the the economics uh, and sort of the extractive you know uh, capacity of you know, sort of core in periphery in kind of a, a Leninist way, saying that okay, we have a, this core of states and they have to expand and exploit the uh, the periphery and get resources and so on. Um, but what's interesting is, again, we tend not to think of alcohol's role in that because we think of alcohol history as this kind of thing that you can put on a, on a shelf and, and admire from a distance, right? Um, but, uh, but what was fascinating from like doing this broader comparative analysis is that you start to see the role that alcohol plays in um, colonization. And it seems to follow the same um, roughly the same playbook 
you know, whether you're talking about the Belgians in the Congo or if you're talking about the British in South Africa or the British in North America or the British in uh, Australia or the British in China with the, I guess, the opium trade um, or in, in, in India or wherever it is that you're going, it seemed to be the same sort of, of playbook in these cases, right? And so, so first of all, I mean, I guess we can take Africa, I guess, as, as a broad example, uh, because you have different European colonists coming into, uh, obviously this, this huge territory. Um, and you have these white European colonists who are, you know, nominally a lot of them are explorers, uh, but also they're traders, right? They, they have things that they want to, to trade with native populations. Um, and those native populations have resources that uh, the European colonists want, right? You know, so you can think about, uh, you know, in South Africa, you've got gold and you've got diamonds. Um, other places you've got, uh, you know, I guess in, in, in the Belgian Congo, they've got, you know, rubber uh, resources. Um, in North America, you've got, say, with, with Native American fur traders, those are highly, you know, highly desired commodities. Um, but then even beyond that, you have, you know, the labor that you could exploit of, you know, indigenous populations um, and the land. Right. So there's, there's always something to be taken. Right. Um, but but the way that I th was thought was particularly interesting. Right. So if you're a, a European trader. Right. And you're coming in and you have some wares and maybe the natives have something that you want, whether that's furs or spices or gold or whatever it is. Right. You're, you're going into ind indigenous populations um, in, in all these cases that have no history of, um, of, of industrial distillates, right? Of, right, of liquors. So they don't have rum, they don't have whiskey, they don't have those high potency, highly portable uh, and highly addictive, um, you know, liquors that, that are there, right? And so right. maybe now, if you're, yeah. So, so, so yeah, yeah, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but. Yeah, um, no, go ahead. I, I was uh, I read a book a few months ago called I think it was called the Immortality Key, and it talks about the fact that alcohol and in some cases psychedelic um, uh, substances are almost coeval with with humankind. So throughout the course of our species history, we've been consuming alcoholic beverages to in, in one form or another, but it was never in this industrialized highly potent, mm -hmm. highly inebriating way. And you speak to that very um, eloquently in your book, that these native populations, it's not as though they had no experience with alcoholic beverages, because all it takes is the fermentation of some local crop, whatever it is, be it rice, be it sugar, be it um, wheat, whatever it is, to produce an alcoholic libation. But it was this very high, powerful um, beverage uh, with which they had no prior experience that led them to these completely immiserated and <laughs> inebriated states. Right, and it's you know it's the difference between fermentation and distillation. You know, it's and uh, there's this historian David Christian who uh, nowadays I think he does this so so called big history thing. He's a, kind of a, a big wig in the big history world, but he started out as a a Russian alcohol historian as it turns out uh but he had this always had this great line that he talks about like the, the jump from fermented beverages like wines and beers meads ales kvass if you're in eastern europe um you know these mildly fermented 
drinks, uh, you know, and then moving to industrial distillates is kind of like the, the movement for, uh, of, of warfare, uh, like to the invent, I guess, the invention of uh, or the discovery and, and utilization of of gunpowder. Right. You're moving from, you know, bows and arrows. From a bow and arrow, yes. Guns, from a bow and right? arrow you know, to a gun. Mm -hmm. um, which is to say that you now have a, a new technology of a potency that's far beyond anything domestic, you know, that, that indigenous populations uh, could, could utilize. And so, yeah, so some, some populations like, you know, India, for instance, had, had palm, you know, natively fermented palm wines and stuff like that. Uh, other, other areas of Africa didn't even have that. North America apparently had, had none of that, but some, um, uh, but, but across the board, what was interesting was the same sort of trader dynamic, right? So if you're a, a European trader and you're coming into uh, this native population, who, by the way, have been getting along just fine without you for hundreds, if not thousands of years, you know, well, what do you have to trade with them, right? So if you have um, a blanket, you know, you could have blankets that you could trade with natives uh, or, or um, you know, a pot, like an iron pot uh, that would be... Um, you know, that, that would be something that you could trade with them, but they would be good for that. You know, so, you, you know, if you trade a pot for them, um, you know, that could last them another 20 to 50 years. They don't need you for another 20 to 50 years. Right. So you're kind of you're not exactly important to their their, you know, sort of native, um, you know, I guess, trading routine. Um, but if you bring in whiskey or rum of this high potency and highly addictive thing that they cannot themselves produce uh suddenly you've gone from being just you know th this bit player now you're an indispensable part of that local community right you are the purveyor of this thing because it has self-fulfilling and self-renewing demand that's associated with it it's so devilish, by, devilishly lucrative and it's in, ingenious ingenious in a nefarious way yeah but yeah as, yeah as one trying to to maximize profits, there could be no greater commodity. Even today, I mean, uh, you look at the the alcohol um, companies today, and and yes, they their profit is dependent on on our dependency. Right, right, right. And so you know all sorts of different things. You know, in terms of alcohol, in terms of uh, you know, in terms of drugs, or even other things that are highly addictive. Right. So like gambling. Um, you know, obviously there's a you know, that's the other thing. If you're looking for like domestic, I guess, contemporary analogies and looking at, at highly addictive behaviors, um, you know, it's, it's hard to make a parallel with, you know, modern day temperance or modern day, you know, liquor, I guess the opioid epidemic and having, mm. um, you know, Purdue pharmaceuticals and making money hand over fist at getting people addicted to, uh, to, to, to opioids and then, uh, and then just, you know, sucking them dry. That's, that's one thing I think is to be sure. But also if you start looking at, uh, you know, some of these these ballot initiatives that we've had recently when it comes to, um, you know, sort of when it comes to uh, to 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 sports betting, sports books, um, you know, those are other behaviors that can be very, very lucrative, but also, you know, utterly revolve around people, um, you know, and and uh, I guess they're addictive qualities as well. So it's, it's weird yeah. to find all these kind of continuities. Yeah, that's and that's a fascinating parallel and maybe a subject uh, into which your um, academic curiosities will lead you the the history of gambling and as mm -hmm. a as a form I don't know if that was um, or could be used as a form of uh, state control or, or really a way to, to raise a lot of revenue I suppose it could be but it is an interesting modern parallel to draw 
Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things where you have the state regulation of, you know, there obviously there were lotteries and there have been gambling, uh, you know, for, for ages. But to harness that into the power of the state and have that be something that financially benefits the state at the expense of society um, is, uh, is, yeah, there are a lot of interesting parallels there as well, right? So even listening to the radio locally, right, you have all these um, advertisements. It's, it's striking how many advertisements you have for, you know, different casinos, different, uh, you know, sports books, you know, sports book operations. And of course, they have to have like the end of every commercial, you know, if you have a problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER, right? That's you know, kind of, it has to be part of that because it's part of the regulated uh, aspects of, uh, of this, this broader trade that does bring in a lot of money to the state, to each individual, you know, sort of United States here in Pennsylvania and you know, New Jersey and other other areas around here, um, but uh, but also comes with some strings attached. Comes with you know some regulations of the state to uh, uh, you know to to modify that behavior. Yeah, it's one of those moral gray zones <laughs> uh, yeah, with yeah. which with which a state and its people uh, needs to needs to grapple. I don't know if they always do so successfully. <laughs> now, right. now you listed a few European actors who impose this alcoholization on um, underdeveloped nations, either in Africa or in Asia. Who do you think was the worst offender of this process? I don't know how, you know, it, the, the Belgians weren't particularly great in the Belgian, you know, in, in King, you know, if you see, if you read King Leopold's Ghost and, uh, you know, uh, that was kind of part and parcel of their, um, you know, I guess colonization of of the Congo, uh, but you know the, the British. I mean, <laughs> the British have used the same sort of again this sort of alcohol colonization um, in in all sorts of different places, right? So not only when it comes to uh, you know uh, South Africa, uh, but also North America, but also India. It seems like they were doing it all all over the place. And so, mm -hmm. but when you ask if I'd, I'd coin that phrase, I don't know if I'd you know I'd, I'd use that phrase. I probably picked it up at some point. Um, but I, I do remember reading somewhere. Um, yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head where, <laughs> which which source it came from. Uh, but they were talking about like the British East India Company um, as as the, the world's first narco empire, right? Like an entire empire that was built based upon the narcotics trade, right? And so not only talking about uh, what that looked like in India, but also you know running opium to uh, to you know to, to China. Um, and using that as an, as a way to sort of dominate and subordinate the the, the Chinese population uh, by using opium in that particular case, where they might use alcohol in uh, in in South Africa or in India or in North America. Yeah, it's it's really quite quite the image to <laughs> to bring to mind Queen Elizabeth, let's say the late Queen Elizabeth sitting atop a narco empire whose yeah, yeah. <laughs> whose whose grandeur is is built on the the um, dependency of masses of, of in, indigenous and indigent people uh, yeah. across across the world. I I think, I'm not sure if it was in your book that I first um, encountered that idea, um, but you, you certainly speak to that. And it's, it's all, it's always um, startling to me to realize that the British empire of which we here in America are the byproducts <laughs> in yeah, some way. to be sure. Um, um, was was basically the um, 
the fruit of a of a field sown with narcotics, narcotics, and uh, whether they were they were opiates or alcohol or what have you. And and you mentioned Belgium. I I don't I I feel like Belgium, perhaps because of its size and maybe relative insignificance in the world, has escaped a lot of <laughs> moral uh, um, or modern opprobrium. I feel like they. And you make this clear in your book. I feel like they, uh, or at least King Leopold, under under his um, administration, um, visited such horrible suffering on <laughs> on the people of the Congo. And you know of it from, like you said, that 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 work of which you made mention, and of course, the Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. But I didn't right. I, I didn't appreciate the alcohol component until I read your book. Their use of what was it? Their use of gin the introduction of gin to the to the local people do i have that correct yeah yeah the the belgians were were heavy on the gin that's for sure and yeah. of course it was it wasn't just gin right and it wasn't just the belgians but that was part of you know the you know king leopold wanted to have his colony to be a you know a good upstanding you know uh european you had to have a colony right and so part of it was the negotiations of you know, can I have this territory? Will the rest of Europe acknowledge that this is my territory, um, including you know, the Belgian people, uh, separate from the uh, from the king himself? Will everybody recognize that I have you know sovereignty over this territory if I let them continue to trade in these areas? And so you know, if I still allow French traders and German traders into these areas, that was kind of the you know the the, the deal that he had to broker. Uh, in order to get that sort of international or European recognition of his uh, sovereignty over those, those those populations in the Congo. You may or may not know the answer to this question. I'll pose it regardless. Do you know, as a consequence of the, the presence of, say, the Belgians in the Congo and the Germans in, you know, West Africa, you know, Southern West Africa, uh, the British in the southern part of Africa, the French in, in the northern part of Africa. Do you know that because of their presences, is there um, um, a tradition in these countries today, in these African nations today, these sovereign African nations, a tradition of Im imbibing drinks from their um, colonial past? Like, is there a preference for for thick German lagers in, in uh, Western Africa and um, maybe certain types of wine in Morocco. Do you know that? I, you know, I don't offhand. Uh, you know, I, I, you can see some of the legacies. And I, I do write a little bit about this in the book about like South Africa uh, in, in particular where you get, um, well, I think it's interesting that you have, you know, uh, Diageo, which is one of the, the world's biggest alcohol conglomerates. Um, you know, it, it comes out of, uh, you know, the, the South African Brewing Company. Um, hmm. And so you had, you know, sort of the, the first industries in South Africa, uh, you know, you had beers, which were being brewed predominantly for the, the white population, uh, but you had, you know, the, the first, um, I guess, liquor, <laughs> you know, sort of distilleries was it were the first factories that were in the, you know, the entire continent of Africa were there to, to distill hard liquors, essentially to placate the uh, you know, the, the native African population so that, you know, you had something that you could uh, get these native Africans hooked on so that you could then extract their labor as a resource to make sure that they're the ones who are going down into the into the gold mines and the diamond mines to, to pick out those resources that are going to make you rich in that particular case, 
based upon their you know their their labor in that aspect so it be, in, in all these cases it becomes a facilitator of that that broader um you know i guess colonial uh dynamic of subjugation in many ways in some ways it's something of a reversal of what we see today uh, whereas mm -hmm. you consider a a beer perhaps um sort of the <laughs> the blue collar drink something that for which you reach at the end of a long day on the uh, during after your shift on the uh, on the in the steel mill or something uh, something like that um, whereas the liquors the spirits the distilled beverages are more well more expensive um, they're mm -hmm. usually consumed in smaller quantities and you sometimes mixed you know but but back then in the you know in the 19th century it was the reverse it was these distilled so far as i understand it these distilled beverages were the ones disseminated to the people to the working people to the to the subjugated classes whereas the beers were um the privilege of the of the elite and the wealthy do i have that correct right right and so yeah i mean even in europe uh you know the distilled beverages were you know uh were seen as I guess in in the language that they would use, you know, uh, as Marxists would use, you know, sort of the lumpen proletariat, right? That was the, you know, the beer was the uh, was a good hearty drink for the working class, right? And then, but but distilled liquors, you know, the the you know, I guess the 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 penny schnapps as they were talking about it, right? You know, that was for the irredeemable drunkards, those those guys who were in the in the gutter, um, you know, that was the source of their misery. Uh, it was also the source of how you know i guess the, the 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 capitalists were exploiting those you know not only the workers but also those uh you know the uh, uh those who were in the gutter i suppose in those cases right so um so the idea was that you know having a temperance movement you know to try to move people away from you know the, the heavy liquors uh towards something that was a little bit more moderate something that was more uh, acceptable social drinking, you know, in, in the beer halls of, of Germany, for instance, was seen as, you know, that, that was there to, to slake the thirst of, of the working class. Um, whereas, you know, the hard liquors were there for the irredeemable drunkards at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating the way in which that, that has changed throughout the course of the years. Um, so you, we mentioned a few times the temperance movement, um, can you talk a little bit about its origins and how the idea of prohibition came about? But but talking about temperance, temperance is weird. Like as I mentioned before, because we we do kind of see that in American history as being a um, as being a uh, <laughs> as being the villains, right? You know, those are the ones who are wanting to take away your freedom, right? Um, but one of the interesting things that you know that has kind of come of this entire movement is that we kind of see the the beginnings the, the way that temperance is usually taught to us is that it was um you know tends to be wrapped up in the suffragist movement which it certainly was um but you can trace it back to these uh the the so-called the six sermons on intemperance uh, of lyman beecher in in boston in in the the 1820s in particular right um and his argument you know it's not like intemperance was something that was new, something that was novel at that point in time. But what he gave to us was this idea that it wasn't just about you know Bible thumping, right? That uh, that that you know drunkards are going to be condemned to hell and and you know fire and brimstone and all that sort of stuff. But where the the modern temperance movement comes from and has its overlaps with uh, 
with, with prohibitionism uh, was a focus on the drink seller. Uh, and I, this is what I found was particularly fascinating. You go back and read his six sermons on intemperance. He wasn't about Bible thumping against the, the drinker. He was Bible thumping against the drink seller saying that, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you want to be a good Christian, you should not be exploiting your neighbor. You should not be forcing your neighbor to drink for your own personal profit. And so that's kind of where it starts to come into its own. Um, but one of the critiques I think of our, our usual historical focus on, on sort of the origins of temperance um, is that for so long it has been, what I talk about is it, it only becomes important when it becomes white people's politics, right? You know, so when you start to have, you know, uh, white people involved in it, right? And so uh, what's, what's fascinating about taking sort of this, this global tour and saying, hey, temperance wasn't just about, um, you know, about white evangelical Protestants saying what you can and can't drink, but it, it tends to be a movement against sort of that alcohol, I guess, alcohol colonization uh, or alcohol imperialism uh, of the rest of the world. Um, and so, so when you start to see that, um, you know, see it through that, uh, that, that particular lens is, um, you know, you start to recognize, hey, you know, the, the first temperance members, if you will, uh, were America's first peoples, were Native Americans. And they were very, very clear from the early colonization that they did not want to have what they talked about as, you know, the white man's wicked water uh, being instituted because they saw, you know, these, uh, the, the impacts of this on their local tribes, on their local communities, um, that you had sort of this domination and subordination of, <coughs> excuse me, Native American populations, um, especially up and down the East Coast, right? You know, when, when it first came to their first encounters with, uh, you know, European colonists and the alcohols, industrialized alcohols that they were bringing. Going, uh, all the way back, going all the way back to the to the esteemed Henry Hudson, after whom the Hudson River is named. <laughs> and I think you mentioned, I won't ask you to, to translate it in, in the original uh, Native American tongue, but the very name Manhattan, the city of, yeah. in, in which the all of our is situated. Right. You, do you know it? You can you can pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was Manahatachuk was and the it, original and it name. Means, and it means it, it, it just means the place where we all got drunk. Right, precisely. <laughs> so for those of you listening, I found that. I mean, just one of those little gems of the book that um, that I found particularly uh, fascinating. Uh, the the name of the city Manhattan comes from a from originally um, a Native American dialect. Uh, uh, I'm not sure whose, but it means essentially the land where where they they got us drunk or or we we were drunk yeah or right, at least right. produced the drink just all those interesting little vignettes and and you start you start to see how again how it's it's you know the story of alcohol isn't just something that you can put on the shelf and 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 uh, segregate but it's it's the story of America and it's the story of global history in in that same sort of way and that was you know for me that was what was fun about writing this book right was was making those sorts of connections and saying, oh, okay, there's, there's, you know, the, the history is not just American history, but it's global history, uh, is, is sort of this, this history of drink and, and sort of the, the alcohol industry, um, and, you know, the states that kind of profit from it and sort of the, the pushback against that, you know, so, so I think is that, quite a deep, I, deep yeah, I think that thread is beautifully woven through the mm -hmm. course of the work. Yeah. And you speak of, uh, things on your shelf, putting that on your shelf. 
uh, you yeah. were speaking um, metaphorically, but now I'm going to speak just briefly in the, <laughs> the small amount of time that we have remaining to us. Yeah. That which occupies your shelf, I would be remiss if I didn't make mention of it. So <laughs> listed first among your professional <laughs> credentials <laughs> on, on your Twitter bio is uh, typewriter repairman. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's so, just a, a so a so yeah. So tell me, where does this uh, affinity for typewriters come from? Where how did you develop this archaic evocation? I don't know. It's just uh, it, it, I picked one up one day because uh, I wanted to, like something that was not just clacking away on a on a laptop, right? You know, and uh, and there was something you know tactile. You get the fun tactile feel, and, and uh, so I had one. Actually, it was this one over here? This this Remington Five. And it's, it's, you know, it's objectively, it's a gorgeous piece of art, right? You know, but it's also, it also has a function to it. And, uh, and so you can have those, those types of things. And then of course, one comes to another, right? You know, it's like, oh, you add one and then you end up having two and you like, they begin, they, they begin to multiply like rabbits. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah they do. But I, I'm really fascinated by, you know, the, the early history, because if you go back to, you know, the 18, you know, from the 1870s through about World War One, like every inventor, every, you know, machinist out there, every engineer, everybody had their own idea about how to get an idea out of your head and then through your fingers and, and put that idea onto a piece of paper. Right. And so everybody had they all they had these wild contraptions, you know, and so uh, and they were all trying to get to the, the market if, about how they could, you know, come up with these different uh writing machines and what could be done conceivably to have you know sort of the writing in plain sight and all the everybody had all these different uh uh you know these different ways of, of going about it uh before they became later on they became standardized by you know the underwoods and the royals and the smith coronas of the world um but that, that's what i find utterly fascinating is you know ha finding these um these contraptions you know these these writing machines um that are still you know and again these are things that I still use, you know, I grade papers on them, you know, and, and so in, in, so many, in many cases, that was, my, that was my next question as someone yeah. uh, whose income is dependent on ideas, writing, grading, um, producing thoughts on paper. Do you actually make use of these devices? Oh yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I, I can't, I don't write the books on them. Right. I, you know, that, that would be, next to impossible i think i was know, hoping you i was hoping you would because it's a quite it's a quite uh, not not to dissuade anyone from reading it but it's a yeah, quite yeah. long book it's a, a it's very a enjoyable book. but a long book so <laughs> as soon as i <laughs> turned on this computer um yeah, yeah. this macbook which is far less impressive than any of your typewriters there but as soon as i saw the image of your background i just pictured you tapping out 500 600 pages <laughs> <laughs> yeah on a typewriter no, I, I, I couldn't do that, but I, I do use it, you know, I use it for grading, you know, for, for grading papers um, and because it's fun, it has that tactile sense to it. Right. And so you could, it, it allows you to get out frustrations and, you know, it's got a nice clickety clack to it. And, uh, and, it, and it probably uh, makes, it probably makes what could be a tedious task, grading papers, a bit more interactive for you and a bit more stimulating as you, that's as you exactly both work it. on your typewriter and plan to repair it after it. Yeah, <laughs> inevitably. You took the exact words family. out of my mouth. It takes you know, especially when it comes to like grading papers or something like the 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 most awful sort of most you know, the dull drudgery of this job, and it actually makes it kind of enjoyable, right? And so it takes you know like some of these tasks and and uh, kind of mixes it up a little bit. You know, it's it's fun to see students who are like, oh, what is this? You know, how do you, you know, 
how did you get these these added students who come in and look around? They're like, oh, oh, that's how you get those markings on our papers. I'm like, yeah, it's a typewriter. It's not like it's not rocket science, but it's yeah. uh, oh, but it's fun, you know. It's now, have you? Kind of here's the question: Have you prevailed on any of your fellow faculty members to adopt <laughs> the use of a typewriter? I have. Uh, I've I've tried. Uh, I have not succeeded yet. Um, it sounds so, like you could probably start a little uh, cottage industry because you oh, are the sure. sole repairman <laughs> of yeah, yeah. typewriters. So you could actually exploit your <laughs> your your, your uh, colleagues, yeah. give them the typewriters that that might be uh, programmed to fail, and then you go in and, and fix them. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I've I actually have had some. Um, well, I guess the the one that's sitting right behind the computer here is a, a Blickensdurfer from the from the eighteen nineties. This weird little thing. It's like only five pounds. A very small contraption. And I, I did have uh, some guy who found me online, and his daughter is a, a student here at uh, at, at Villanova, uh, and he's like, "Do you have any experience fixing these these things?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I've I've fixed up a couple here and there." And so, uh, next thing you know, he's driving down from Connecticut to to drop off a typewriter, and you know has me work on it for a while and uh, and that was that was fun you know it's fun you know to to kind of bring these things back to life i mean it's kind of like this frankenstein moment that uh, you know like ah it's 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 working now again right and uh and, and there is i don't know i think there's always kind of a sense of you know i always try to preserve the stories along with them right you know trying to figure out oh who owned this originally and and uh, what were their stories and who was using this uh, originally who bought these things and so like you know, a lot of these have stories, you know, that are, that kind of come with them. Um, you know, one of my favorite ones, there's a Continental over there. Uh, you know, a lot of these were, you know, sort of, especially for World War II, they were, um, you know, war booty, right? So people would, you know, GIs would, would take, that was, you know, like the, the thing that you would get, right? And you would bring it home. Um, and so it's amazing how many German typewriters or Nazi era typewriters kind of wash up in the United States. Um, and I, not, I exactly, have, you know, not exactly the yeah. easiest thing to, to throw into your pack and oh, travel yeah, yeah. back to America. The, the portable ones are, are, are much easier, right? Uh, but but the Continental over there, and I, I, again, the, the sort of Nazi-era typewriters, I kind of keep at arm's length for a long time. Uh, but that was a fascinating one. I bought it from the, the, the granddaughter of the GI who brought it from the United States. And he said they, they had the entire experience. And he said, okay, this was part of the German war machine. This was from Nuremberg, uh, this Veracruz 13, which is like their domestic uh, military organization, right? So, and that's where it came from. It was part of that that thing. Um, but then as part of the occupying forces, when they decided that they were gonna have the military tribunal and, and move it from Berlin, which is where it was scheduled to be, to Nuremberg to have the war crimes tribunal, they didn't have enough uh, office machinery. And so they're like, we need to use your typewriter for for this and so the, it was kind of drafted into service and so that typewriter was actually used at the the nuremberg war crimes tribunal and so as somebody who teaches a lot about international history and international laws like you know that that has to be part of it you know i will i will hold on to that one just based upon the the history that kind of comes through oh, there's the there's a rich history flowing through that machine that oh yeah is incredible yeah, there's so many, you know, and all of them. I try to to preserve that as best as I can, you know, when it comes to maintaining and preserving some of these machines. But so, if anyone out there is in the need of uh, any <laughs> typewriter <laughs> repairman's services, yep. um, of which should be around, hard, you know, <laughs> there are folks in Florida, you know, a Tampa typewriter, I'll, I'll, you know, they can a, be found. They can be Nashville found. Nashville and 
Philly also, you've got you got people. There's there's a, a, a grassroots movement all over the uh, all over the world that are you know in, involved in this, and I I can't explain what drives people to 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 this kind of madness, but uh, but there's I, uh, I, find I, would, it I wouldn't I wouldn't call it madness. There's a certain <laughs> there's a certain nostalgia, even if that's not something yeah. with which you grew up. Uh, there yep. is a, a sort of a yearning for the simplicity of a of a of a bygone time. Same the yep. same thing is applicable to um, the the records and, and people oh, sure. are buying them. And I'm sure that you have a record. There it is. I, well, there, there's, I got two of them. Yeah, you know, stacked on top of each right, other. There. Right, right, right. So there's a renewed interest in in an enthusiasm around uh, yep. these record players, even among people in my demographic who have no experience with these things, but oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's something like you said, I think it's that tactility. It's that, that ability to touch and to feel and to, to get the energy from past ages and into your system. And I think yeah. that's, what's, what's driving a lot of this. So you've been very gentle over there and this is all 78s under, underneath this. This is, oh, I'd, I'd love to see your music. I'd love to see your music. <laughs> I'd love to see your music collection. I would absolutely yeah, yeah. love. Well, I used to, I used to work at a record store back in the day. And so that's, that's where I met my wife originally. We, we, we used to sell record albums and set, you know, and, 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 uh, and CDs and all that other stuff as well. So. so that leads me to a few rapid fire questions. The first of which is, what is your most cherished record your most cherished album yeah my most cherished record album. i don't know when i was living in russia in the 90s uh i did buy off of this guy he had an entire his entire collection of beatles albums but they were all on soviet vinyl and i think that was like the coolest thing that i could find and so i i've got like an entire uh collection of, of soviet beatles uh, re record albums uh that's that's probably the most cherished one at this point that is very cool. Uh, next, and we're going very quickly, your favorite character from the Russian Revolution, your favorite figure, who was the most fascinating for you? From the Russian Revolution? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think you, you got to go with, you know, the Lenins and the, the Trotskys. Those are, you know, kind of interesting figures. Uh, but one guy, I don't know, if got one of them down here. Uh, there's this guy, Gustav Gerlach, who was the prov provider of advanced machines and typewriters to the imperial russian army um you know i've got one of his machines down here i'm, I'm fascinated by him uh obviously I'm, I'm probably the only one who has any any idea who that guy was yeah um, i think so. i think so when you said you had yeah, him yeah. down here i thought maybe you had him in a mausoleum but no it's i just got a typewriter down here right okay i'm i'm partial to trotsky i just um yeah, I, yeah. I find the way in which he ended uh <laughs> or he was ended yeah, yeah. Is, is just one of the great is one of the great deaths uh, in in all of human history. Um, your favorite alcoholic beverage? You know what? I've I've been sober like six months now, which is weird. You know, but before then, it, you know, it was I was into to meads. You know, after the vodka book, I couldn't drink vodka anymore, um, and I kind of got away from distilled beverages. And so lately, I was on a, on sort of a mead kick. Um, but uh, but also you know I like a good beer you know like Belgian beers are, are a lot of fun too so uh, and now, are there any um, moral reservations when you imbibe a Belgian beer when you think back to its colonial abuses <laughs> or do yeah, you drink it no, with a beer conscience not not really you know so it's, it's the, the Belgian beers are like American done Belgian beers I think are, are tend to be very very good uh, Omagong this there's a brewery up in upstate New York that does arguably they do belgian beers better than the belgians but uh that i'm sure that's going to get me in trouble with somebody somewhere 
<laughs> if anyone's listening, then then perhaps. But I think the I think you'll be forgiven based yeah, on yeah. <laughs> all the the wealth of information that you've shared with us. So again, um, Professor Shrad, you've been extraordinarily generous with your time, for which I thank you. Um, all of your books will be posted in the show notes below. So everyone will have the opportunity to, to access them and hopefully buy them as I did either at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. I, I think they're available at, at all your, your traditional booksellers. Um, and is there a certain uh, social media page or a website on which people can follow you and, and get some updates on what you're doing either professionally or with your typewriters? Uh, you know, I'm at Vodka Politics on, on Twitter. Um, I, I've kind of mothballed that recently, but, uh, you know, I just started up on Instagram. Uh, you know, I think it's just, uh, just at, at Mark Lawrence Schrod. Um, you know, you can find me there. I'm just posting typewriter pictures for the most part. So typewriters and, and busts of Karl Marx. That's, yeah. that's, that's a winning combination. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, He's any parting, everywhere. any parting thoughts from you to our listeners? Not really. Just just think broadly. You know, that's that's kind of my my focus. Uh, you know, so thinking outside the box in terms of, uh, you know, and don't be afraid to 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 get into other people's uh, you know sandboxes. That's that's where it's a lot of fun. It tends to be. Yeah, I think that's some great advice with which we can all walk away. Um, so again, thank you so much for your time, um, and to everyone out there listening, um, farewell from Finneran's Wake.